Matthew Dawkins, and welcome also to 2023. What? That's right. That's right, co-hosts who I've not introduced yet. We're in a new year. We're in a new year. It's a new day. We've got a whole new set of products to come this year. But that's not what we're talking about. Well, we're talking about one of them. We're talking about one very big one. We're talking about a very exciting piece of news uh, that surrounds the month of January and February and hopefully fills your gaming table with fun activities for many months thereafter. And that subject matter is the realms of Pugmire. But before we get on to that, I should <laughs> introduce my co-hosts. I am joined, as ever, by Dixie Cochran. Hello. And Eddie Webb. Hello. Now, this may be the first time you're listening to this podcast. Uh, I don't know. I'm that's taking it. That seems unlikely, weird. but possible. <laughs> it, yeah, maybe. It, it seems unlikely, I will admit. So my thinking is this. When I start a new year, uh, much as many people, I will often pick up a new hobby or I will try something new out. And as this is our first episode for 2023, someone may think, hey, I like Onyx Path. I think the creators are top kinds of people. Uh, I want to hear what they have to say about their games. And if they weren't put off by that one and a half minute intro, maybe this is the first time they're listening to the Onyx Pathcast and they really want to hear about the realms of Pugmire. Also, if you are, uh, maybe it's linked on the Kickstarter page. Maybe that's why they're listening to it. I don't know. Ooh, that's true. Well, yeah. Maybe when we publicize this episode, we could say this is a perfect jumping on point for new listeners and we might attract some. See, <laughs> th- this is this is the brainstorming, the mind mapping, the creative heart of Onyx Path mm. at work right now. And, and if you are new to this, you should know, A, that we have been doing this for five years now, and B, you cannot tell that from what you just heard for the past two and a half minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we've only just started talking about how to reach new listeners. <laughs> so, God Filthy. damn it, Webb, these figures have been stagnant for the last five years. <laughs> Bring me pictures of Spider-Man. Yes, I want your gun and your badge. You're a maverick, a loose cannon, a wild card. Oh, I was going J.J. Jameson. You're going uh, 50s uh, Dragnet Cop, right? Okay. Uh, right now, but I've, I've, t- I've taken a shine to you, kid. You remind me of me when I was young. You got... <laughs> You got pluck, you got spunk. Here, have this gun, have this badge. You go paint the town red with criminal blood. (laughs) Wow. Someone's got to set this town right, kid, and it's up to you. The rest of this department's crooked, you hear me? Crooked. You can't even trust the words I'm saying. I've been bought off by the mob, (laughs) see? Are you like the captain for the Punisher? Like, what's happening right now? (laughs) I don't know. My my character has been through a lot. He's obviously going through a divorce because (laughs) he's chain-smoking. Uh, he's lost most of the hair and what he's lost in hair he's gained in pounds Uh, he hasn't changed his shirt in three days because his wife won't let him back in the house Uh, so who knows about the rest of his clothes and sometimes he thinks young detective Webb here is this maverick he's off the chain he needs to be reined back in damn it Uh, I've got the chief of police breathing down my neck but other times the, the this guy he leans over to Detective Webb and says, "Listen, I respect what you're doing. I can't say it in front of the boys because they'll have my neck. But you keep doing what you're doing, kid. You're setting this city straight." So he's a secret mentor. He's he's proud of him, but he can't display it openly in front of the rest <laughs> of the squad. What does secret mentor square with? Here's a gun. Paint the town red with criminal blood. That's but that's... it doesn't come back to me. Oh, no, there name, we go. Okay, that was my name. That was missing. <laughs> My name can't appear in any of this. I'm a confidential CI, as far as you're concerned, who gave you a gun and a badge. Uh, honestly, the more that you flesh out this character, the more it just sounds like Jackson Lamb from Slow Horses. Yeah. I really need yeah, Slow Horses. L- less farting and, uh, <laughs> and gratuitous drinking and ordering of curries. But it's, it's close. It's close. I was actually kind of... Thinking also, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but um, the 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 lead uh, captain from Life on Mars, the, where where everyone was like so openly corrupt. Oh, Gene Hunt. Thank you. Mm. Yes. 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 Less of that accent. I won't try and do a Gene Hunt accent. <laughs> uh, Somebody's done better with ambiguous New York chief. 
<laughs> I, I do love how all of your American accents kind of stop in 1952. <laughs> yeah, right? well, that's when they stopped going, meh. Meh. <laughs> <laughs> As a form of recognition or acknowledgement. Yeah. <laughs> you, you've she... learned everything about America from Looney Tunes cartoons, clearly. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of Looney Tunes cartoons, they often uh, contained animals. Ooh, nice segue. <laughs> and police departments often have a dog squad. <laughs> See, look, look at all this. The, look this all intricate this. web weaving. This is how... Hey, hey. Keep your hands to yourself. Don't weave this web. <laughs> this is how an Onyx Pathcast comes together. And Again, and if you're with... new to this, this is normal. This is not an unusual episode for us. Yeah, no, this is just how we are. We also talked for 45 minutes before we started about like comedians and other shit. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, boy, you missed out on a treat there. We almost got to the point <laughs> once in 45 minutes. Um, bear in mind the point was to start recording. Um, <laughs> It took us 45 minutes to get there. Right. So. But here we are. Here we are. Here we are indeed. And we are going to be speaking predominantly, uh, with any luck, about the realms of Pugmire. Now, yes. Eddie, you are the man. The man with the plan. You are the person we're looking at. The Webster. The, the Webmeister. <laughs> the Weberino. Yeah. <laughs> the Ed Man, and you're the person who can tell us what is the difference between Pugmire and the realms of Pugmire. To start. Two words. But... Realms of. That's it. Okay, well, if you're going to be... I the logo, words, and that's it. <laughs> three words, because Matthew said the realms of Pugmire. Oh, sorry, three words then. There you go. Yeah, there's no need to be uh, like that. Dixie's editing job was very easy this time around. Well, just remove the from right. Realms of Pugmire. Yeah, that's, uh, that's all I did. No, no, no. Well, um, no, there's... no, you see, I, I've seen some people say, I've seen this game being promoted, Realms of Pugmire. It's supposed to be on Kickstarter at the end of January, they've said, but mm-hmm. what's the difference between Realms of Pugmire and just Pugmire? Yes, so uh, Realms of Pugmire is a new edition of Pugmire, uh, and that's base level. Uh, that That's kind of... A lot of what you know, if you're familiar with how tabletop role playing games put new editions, it's, it's going to be similar to that. This is, uh, I, I, I'm using new edition opposed to second, mainly because I just don't like enumerating editions. I that's slightly passe. Um, uh, while I've seen arguments on both sides of it, when you look at a game and it's in its seventh or eighth edition, it feels like, oh, maybe this isn't for me, you know? So um, I, 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 I'm using more new edition language, but. It is a refinement of what came before. Uh, so again, in the the off chance that you are new to this podcast, hello, welcome. Um, I hope you made it this far. Uh, but Pugmire is a uh, game that is set in our far future. Uh, humanity is gone. No one knows entirely where, but at some point in time, animals were uplifted. So dogs, cats, uh, rats, mice are able to stand on two legs. They can speak. They can use tools. They have fingers on their paws. They're also more like human sized, right? Yeah, they're a little bigger uh, than. Yeah, not not. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like mice aren't three inches tall. Right. Yes. Um, uh, and so it is not a post-apocalyptic game. It is a, just a far future game after a devastating change. But it's not like The Walking Dead, where it's ten minutes later and there are dead people walking around and you can see the devastation. A lot of that has gone away, and so these animals are. Exp- re-exploring their world as they try to uh, build civilization in it. Um, mm. And they look at us, humanity, as absent deities. Um, so collectively called man or the old ones. And it uses a system that is heavily inspired by Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition. Uh, the first edition was. Uh, and so for this new edition, it's a lot of it is refinements. Um, it, it's been five years since the first game came out. I've learned a lot about the world. I've learned a lot about the system. I've gotten feedback from people who've played the game for five years. Uh, people have asked questions online, things I've just noticed uh, because I know all, all of us here are familiar with the, you stare at a thing, you think you got everything, and then you, it comes in print and then you open the book and immediately find five things that you realize are mistakes. Um, there was definitely that for me. Uh, but also, Pugmire was designed initially to be a book. I, I did not know it was going to be anything more than one book. 
Right. Uh, everybody else around me seemed to have way more uh, beliefs that would be bigger than I did. Uh, but I was hedging my bets and it's like, can this just be a standalone game? Now it's been five years. Clearly there's still a lot of interest in it. Um, so it also gives me a chance to start from the ground floor and build it out. So like this is, we're coming into this with the, I have at least six books in mind that are very likely going to happen, potentially mm. seven. Um, so this is coming in as a game line. Uh, and that has a different structure and a strategy. It doesn't change too much, but understand that there's there, that, that, those are all sorts of reasons why a new edition made sense to do. So, well, obviously we're calling this episode Deep Dive. So assuming that people listening to this have some idea of what uh, the Pugmire RPG has been, okay, would you be kind enough as to tell us, uh, if it's not too broad a question, some of the, I guess, changes in this edition, in this uh, in this update, uh, from the previous one? Uh, is there, for instance, Metaplot that has moved on? Are there, um, are there new playable options? Is there information that's been consolidated into this volume that was spread across multiple volumes in, in previous editions? Previous the, edition, so there's the flip, only been one. The flippant answer would be yes, yes, and yes. But, <laughs> oh, well, that was easy. <laughs> no, uh, uh, more to the point. Um, uh, there, time has moved on. I actually distinguish between what is commonly called meta plot and uh, an evolution of a setting. Uh, and for me, the distinction is. Metaplot on some level requires you to understand what came before so you can understand what has changed, and that is a necessary part mm -hmm. of change. So, for example, uh, I'm going to pick on Man by the Masquerade here. It's a good example of Metaplot. Um, uh, so, but things like the Gangrel leaving the Camarilla, you have to understand the gang Gangrel were part of the Camarilla and why them leaving the Camarilla is a big deal. Um, so, that's a Metaplot change. It, it's not good or bad. I'm not putting a value judgment on it, it it's just what it is. For me, I'm not doing any of that. People who have never played any of the original edition of Pugmire and are just coming in fresh to Realms of Pugmire don't need any context for it. People who have been fans of it will see little references and nuggets and hooks and plots uh, bits that show that the world is a little further along than it was before. Uh, but none of it is required. And indeed, you could probably jettison any of it if you don't want to. So... For example, um, like the previous edition, uh, this edition starts off with one of the characters, Yosha Pug, who is the princess of Pugmire, talking about her world. Uh, but Yosha is a few years older than she was when we previously saw her. Um, mm. It's undefined in a number of years, but basically she went from uh, just becoming a teenager to now close to young adulthood. So roughly 13, 14, 15 to roughly 16, 17, 18 now in human mm. context. The tensions between uh, Pugmire and the cats, cities, the monarchies of Mao, were initially, uh, there were references to them. The conversations were starting uh, to have cultural com exchange conversations and potentially come to a treaty. Uh, in this stage, those treaties have not gone well and they haven't broken down yet, but there are concerns that it may happen. Uh, so things have moved on in that front. So, so the first question, Yes, uh, there has been an evolution of time period, but it's been A, to give people some new things to play with, uh, B, a chance to, to one of your other points, consolidate some information that had been dripped through the various books and kind of pull it together, and also to quietly retcon a couple of things. For example, one thing I was genuinely surprised by when I went back to first edition of Meyer is I didn't use rodents. Everything was rats. There was no mention of mites mm -hmm. anywhere in the first yeah. book. It was all rats. Um, and then almost immediately after that, I said, rats and mice, or can they have some kind of unified society, or not unified, connected society? Um, and I didn't really know what that all looked like, and so I got this squeaks in deep, but I knew that was happening. But for some reason, first edition, I just had rats in my head. Um, so it gave me a chance to kind of quietly recon that to they are rodents. And also some of the things that rats did in the original edition of Pugmire, we have more context for in squeaks in deep. So I was like, I'm bringing at least some of that context in to scaffold that a bit more. Uh, so... Yes, there's also kind of a consolidation of things, as well as little things like there are some extra weapons in Pirates of Agmire threw into the weapons table, because why not? The the cultural things that were spelled out for like the naming convention for cats, I didn't actually have that nailed down completely in the first 
position mm. for the Meyer until monarchies are mounted. So I was able to bring that back in and present it up front. So that way, when you get into the cat culture, that's not going to be a surprise anymore. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of the rest is various forms of rules refinement, which I can get into, but um, at a high level, uh, none of the system changes necessarily break anything. The only thing that's like you'll have to redo the math on kind of stuff uh, is monster mon- the monster math. Uh, has changed the monster math. He did the monster, monster math. math. Thank you. I'm glad someone <laughs> caught me there. Yeah, no. Uh, I got it. I just chose not to laugh. Oh, good, good, good. Good, that, great. That that that's defines my career. Anyway, he chose not to laugh. <laughs> um, that like that's like the biggest thing because um, there was a lot of refinement. How Dungeons and Dragons, their core math works doesn't work for what I wanted to do with Pugmire, which again, I can get into if you're interested. Um, but that's like the only real significant piece. But even then, I present all of the enemies that were in first edition are also present in second edition. So you could just go, oh, okay, instead of using this group of numbers, I use that group of numbers. Done. Okay. So anything in particular you want me to dig into? Well, hmm. Well, I've been asking most of the questions. Why are you, Dixie? I thought you were the host. I, I, I didn't prepare any questions. Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I want to talk about... Um... There are some changes that are rules changes. Mm-hmm. So how will this be compatible with earlier editions? Since I know there, there's always going to be some people who are like, I just bought Squeaks in the Deep. Why are you doing a new edition? Oh, right. Very good question, Dixie. Yeah. So like, what's what's changed? Can you use some of the, old, the older material still? And where is that spelled out? Actually, uh, I'll answer the second question first about Squeaks in the Deep, and then I'll come, because it leads into the, the bigger it. question. Um, uh, because I have had a few people online, it's like, you know, Hey, why are you doing this so suddenly? Uh, and the answer is it's actually not sudden, but you have to kind of look at the, mm. the timetable of things. Um, I actually started work on Squeaks and Deep, or sorry, on, uh, Realms of Bugmire with my, uh, team, uh, back around the beginning of 2022. So it's been about a year in development before we announced it actually. Yeah. And so we've announced it now because we want people to be aware of it and ready for it and, and, Part of the reason for the timing of the announcement was specifically one, make sure that people got squeaks in their hands before we start talking about this. But traditionally, our timetable from making a book from the time we do a crowdfunding campaign to the time we deliver it has been more or less two years. So it's not, I just got squeaks in deep and now it's invalid. No, it's like you have at least two years until this book comes out. So that's your concern. If you're measuring it on time from Kickstarter to time of release, squeaks was right around the time the pandemic started is when we kickstarted it. Mm. So it's been three years since the Squeaks Kickstarter to this crowdfunding campaign. So it's not sudden in that regard. Uh, but I also recognize that most people are not going to be thinking through the production challenges of tabletop role-playing games because who in their right mind would, frankly? Mm-hmm. Uh, only weirdos like us had to worry about that. So uh, what, I, what I did do, and one of the things that was foremost in my mind when I even pitched this was that there would be a appendix in the back that would allow for conversion. Uh, because I feel like as long as the edition is not radically different, and this one definitely isn't, uh, it's just kind of a nice thing to do, uh, is like make sure that stuff from your last version of your game, you can, people can at least try to use it in a new edition of the game. Um, yeah. There are some, I can think of some cases culturally and historically where that, that hasn't been uh, a great idea. Um, but yeah, in general, I feel like if you have the room in the book, you should try to make that happen. So it's something I actually budgeted space for to make sure it happens. And so what that has is, is two kind of chunks to the appendix. The first chunk, which confusingly is the second half of the appendix, is an explicit breakdown of everything. Uh, so it, it walks through all the rules changes that are relevant. There's not, I'm not going to go through every single, this damage change from this to that. I'm not going to that level of detail. But as far as the core rules are concerned, right. all the core rules that change, I actually walk you through all of those. And I do it chapter by chapter. So in chapter two, character creation, here's all the significant character creation changes. In chapter three, here's all the core rules changes. Here's how magic changed chapter four, so on and so forth. Um, I also uh, point out where there's been, anything has been uh, replaced or in a couple of cases removed, uh, particularly in spells. If you're looking for this spell and you can't find it, it's now called this. Um, and there's like one or two spells that I, it was just removed because it just didn't make sense to include them into the game. Uh, and, but I also, even then I say here are equivalents you can take. Here are spells that do roughly the same thing or spells of the same spell magnitude if uh, you want something, an equivalent slot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that goes down to the level of like, 
ratters now have a new aptitude trick and start with a different trick than they did before. It's, it's that level of detail. Yeah. Um, so if you, the goal is if you have a character, you should be able, from first edition, you should be able to look at this appendix to make the appropriate changes. You may have to eyeball a couple of things. You may have to work with your guide in a couple of things, but you should be able to just use those two documents to get things ready for second edition. It should, it should be that simple. And most of the time it's going to be replace this thing first edition with this thing for second edition and just use those rules now. So uh, on that note and uh, talking about, I guess, porting your characters or your stories from one edition to the other, mm. you mentioned things like spells. Uh, obviously, there's been a lot of spells and spell-like abilities uh, across Pugmire, Mao, Squeaks. I think there was, there was some in Pirates as well. Mm -hmm. How easy are people going to find it, not just to port their characters, but to port mechanical systems like magic, essentially, and specific magical abilities to this new version of the Realms of Pugmire system? It's going to be mostly okay. Um, so... Uh... Talk about spells specifically. Yeah. One of the things we did was we brought in a piece of 5e tech that actually cut originally because I didn't quite, didn't work. It, um, so let me step back for context. I started working on Pugmire before 5th edition came out and before the OGL license for 5th edition came out. So the original design was based off of 3.5 edition of Dungeons and Dragons. Um, mm -hmm. 5th edition introduced the concept of spending more spell, casting spells at a higher level to get a bigger effect. I didn't quite understand what that was doing at the time. I didn't have a lot of time to really study it because we were literally in the middle of the Kickstarter when this change happened. Right. Um, so I just did the bare minimum to get things to work within the core as I had designed, um, but it didn't 100% line up with 5e intents. We now have had several years of watching that system work. It's like, oh, this is way better. Uh, so we, I now worked that back in and basically as opposed to casting at higher levels, it's now just much more like mana points in video games. Um, you have spell slots, mm. you spend more spell slots, you can get a bigger effect. And this has allowed us to combine a lot of spells, which is the main goal, right? So, um, if, uh, right now there's a, a cloud spell and that cloud spell includes things like gaseous cloud, cloud kill, Noxious Cloud. There's just different variations on the same cloud spell. Virgin, those are all mm -hmm. separate spells. Um, so you absolutely can bring a spell from first edition and bring it in. It might be a little weaker in some respects mm. uh, because it won't have those additional benefits, uh, but you can probably also extrapolate those in a lot of cases. Um, yeah. And the damage will be a little wonkier uh, because the other thing we did is we tried to make the damage a little more standardized that way because now we had a clear progression of spell path, we could more easily dial in the damage so it was more consistent output, if you will. Um, DPS, if you want to use video game terms, but that's basically the same idea as like, you know, getting, you know, people at a certain level are consistently producing a certain amount of damage at roughly the same points. Um, uh, but I mean, in terms of actually using a spell, if you just take it, make sure the terminology maps to the new terminology of second edition, it should just work. It, it won't be ideal because just like anything, you're, you're, taking something from an older thing and putting it into a new thing. There's always going to be rough edges. Mm. But my instinct is that when those rough edges pop up, you should be able to negotiate with your guy at the table to make things work and move ahead. Okay. And actually, I was going to say that actually leads to uh, the other point I was going to mention of, of Vic's question. Uh, the first part of the appendix in that spirit uh, does have rules for creating cat and rodent characters. Nice. Uh, but it's not the complete rule set you can make a character but what you're doing is instead of saying here's absolutely everything for cats here's all the cat uh secrets here's all the tricks for rodents instead it's the here's their equivalent in the core rule books for dogs we're just calling mm. them separate things here's a couple of key pieces that you absolutely need to emulate these but if you want this use that for now and it will give you an experience that is from a mechanical perspective pretty close and emulates it pretty well and That's then cool. at some point in time in the future um we're going to put out a cat player's guide and a rodent player's guide that is specifically for making characters for those species yeah uh, i feel like uh, so not not to take anything away from you eddie i there's so this isn't the first game that's done something like that. Oh, no, 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 not at all. Uh, and I'm trying to think of the game that did. Uh, the, there's one in my mind in particular 
that allows you to play characters for of a different type using the the sort of templates, I guess. The so rules uh, and actually, such. Um, early, 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 World of Darkness did this. That was it. Yeah, I was actually thinking of yeah. Hey, this because is remember, how werewolves, werewolves have presented a, in vampire. Yeah, if werewolves yeah, spent yeah. rage, they get equivalent dots in celerity for the period in time. Yeah. And, um, if you wanted to use a, a mortal mage, you just give them different levels of pathothaumaturgy. Yeah, it's def- mm. absolutely that spirit. Yeah, yeah. I, for whatever reason, it was escaping me that that was World of Darkness. So which well, it's is... not like you've worked on it very much. No, well, not recently. <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've just dubbed that part of your brain. It's gone now. <laughs> well, it's been, what, something like nine months since I last touched it. I've, I've been involved in a lot of other games since then. That's fair. That's fair. But but yeah. So I mean, that, that kind of actually leads to another point before, before you get your question. But um, uh, leads to a point that I think is worth kind of mentioning is that uh, with the first edition, I actually had an idea of each uh, each species would have a core rulebook because I felt at the time there would be enough rules changes and enough distinction that would validate them having their own separate games, and that way people who want to play just cats could pick up Monarchies of Mal, want to play just dogs, could pick up Pugmire, but they could work together and it would be great. And again, using World Darkness is kind of a rough design model. Yeah. That did not happen uh, because while I'm extremely proud of what all the work we did on Monarchies of Mal and lots of people really love the game, from a sales perspective, it has sold about half of what Pugmire does because mm. people approached it like it was a supplement mm. and that's the typical drop-off for a supplement sales. Yeah. And people would talk about it no matter how much I would correct them, no matter how much I made sure it was clear People still refer to it as a supplement to Pugmar, mm. um, which is why Squeaks in the Deep ended up not being a core rule book, but was just a supplement. And how people engage with that was no different than how they engaged with Monarchies and Mount. Uh, so it made sense if I'm doing a new edition, I should design with that intent. Uh, yes. So that's why the, the player's guides are, are coming into existence is because I didn't want you to have to buy a massive book of, of cats and the monarchies and all the intrigue and all those monsters if you just want to play a cat. Um, so I think right now the tentative titles are Cats of Pugmire and Ruins of Pugmire, specifically so that way it secures just the cat creation rules, you know, all of the spells, all the references you mm. need, boom. Um, and mm. if you want to play that in a Pugmire-based game, then you could do that. If you want to set your game in a different setting besides Pugmire, then we're looking at having a Monarchies of Mouse setting book so that way, okay, now I can take this Pugmire game and set it into the monarchies. Uh, so now you mm. do need three books to get there as opposed to one before, um, and there's no way around that path. But I do feel like that gives you a lot more flexibility because the language become more standardized. One thing we notice with both Pirates and Squeaks, I know Dixie will be familiar with this, is <laughs> constantly you can find this in Pugmire on this page or Monarchies on this page, and, and constantly having a double reference and constantly saying we have to assume people have one book and not the other so we have to make sure all the references line up yep we can ditch a lot of that which makes things a lot cleaner and simpler yeah that was one of the more frustrating parts about working on there is not not that it was like a, a big problem but just when i was trying to do the character creation for both squeaks and pirates having to be like okay so these people can take spells from these lists and these right. can take spells from these lists but they also get this special spell da, 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 which is why i know that er- early on we had talked about listing all the things that they could take and i was like eddie that's going to be yes. so much word count <laughs> like it would be way easier just to do a, a like page reference or something and then yeah that, that's what we did so is is there a reason that you chose to um just you cats and rodents for the core book and not our other yes species? because in my mind it's always been the triumvirate the the way the setting is set up is that mm. um, the dogs have a complicated relationship with cats and have a complicated relationship with rodents. And they're different relationships, but they both shape dog society. And cats have a complicated relationship with rodents, have a complicated relationship with dogs, and that shapes yep. monarchy society. Um, the other species are always meant to kind of plop into the dynamic of those three. Uh, so... I could have added even more word counts into, um, you know, here's how to emulate birds, how to emulate uh, uh, you know, reptiles, lizards. They were called lizards, not called reptiles. Again, one of the small things I've changed because lizards turned out way more than lizards. So I can do that. And, and it's possible maybe with stretch goals and whatnot, maybe that's something we'll add on. I don't know. I'm not committing to that, but it's a, it's a theoretical possibility. But to me, that's always been the design. So it, I would rather take something I think I learned well from our source books and put 
say, birds into the monarchy source book because the way that birds and cats have relationship is something we never had room for in pirates, and I want to give more room to. And so mm -hmm. putting that in there because it makes sense to put to juxtapose them with cats specifically. Yeah, I mean, I, honestly, the, the the animals that cats are most known for chasing are besides birds. mice yep. are birds and lizards. Right. Um, similarly, um, I feel like having, uh, I, I'm, I believe putting reptiles in with uh, um, Squeaks in the Deep, second edition book currently it makes sense to me because I want to juxtapose the the characters who are a migrant population with the characters who do not have a, a home population. You know, they're, they're the settled migrants versus the mm -hmm. migratory peoples. And there's a, there's a contrast and a connection there that lizards and rodents can have because they're both outsiders of culture, but in very different ways. Right. And also, you know, like they are, viewed very similar so they have some connections but also some strong differences um and then something i know i get asked a lot uh but there will pop currently my current plan is there will also be a actual pugmire source book that goes into things like mutt town and houndton mm -hmm. but then that's where the badger tribes will probably be because though i ship dogs and badgers again culturally speaking dogs hunt down badgers that's one of the reasons they were bred for even um, and so that relationship is distinctive to dogs. The badgers don't have the same relationship with cats. Like you said, birds and cats have the, the bird, that relationship doesn't, birds doesn't necessarily pair with dogs. So I'd rather them, and also it, it allows mm -hmm. your source books to have some player crunch. Um, one of the things that if you buy, if you just make a city source book, um, something I know Matthew talked a lot about in our Chicago by night deep dive was if it's just, Here's a bunch of adventure stuff that only game masters are buying. Your players don't have a strong sense of divide. But when you have the La Sombra in there, then players have reason mm. to pick up Chicago by Night too. Uh, yeah. So again, it's a similar design idea. It's like going, oh, I'm a good bird. That's, yeah, see, that's exactly, how Matthew right? got me. Um, and so I know if I put <laughs> in, you know, uh, ability to play your snack and do Squeaks and Deep Book, you'll probably pick it up because you want to play your snack. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, as you know, and as you just said, it's a philosophy I very much believe in design-wise. I think there should always be something player-facing in, in a book. And uh, a term I read for the first time in a while yesterday, I think in one of our discords, was stealth marketing. Yeah. And and there's, there's a truth to it. It isn't uh, a great... We're, we're not being horrible people when we say look, there's something to appeal to you as players, and you might find something that interests you about the setting or that makes you want to run the game because it's unlikely you will just read the single chapter from a book you just right. bought. Uh, we obviously want our books to sell, and we want people to use them or read them and, uh, and take enjoyment from as much of them as, as possible. Um, but you were talking about Mutt Town and, and Badgers, and that that takes me on to a question I do have about setting. Mm -hmm. uh, so to my mind, and feel free to, to contradict or disagree, uh, the realms of Pugmire as a setting has always been fairly, I guess, I wouldn't say loose necessarily, but There's it's a lot of black been... Space. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a skeleton mm -hmm. more than a fully fleshed out meat suit. There you go. That's, that's an excellent term. Metaphor. Thank you, Matthew. Go for it. But let, let's go Nailed for that. It. That's what Nailed I was aiming it. for. Yeah. yeah, there we go. That's why I'm a writer. <laughs> the neat <Yeah>. That is <laughs> The butcher's shop window. There you go. That's got a more of a dog nice. focus. And uh, so, yeah, it left an awful lot for the guide to fill in, for players to fill in. Uh, are you approaching that with a different vantage for this version, or are you sticking with that, that you're giving the, I guess, the agency to the guides? Uh, what, what's your design philosophy um, there? A little bit of both. Uh so the core rulebook is still very much designed in that vein. Um, I'm not adding a ton of new setting material, partially because I just need the room for other things, partially because I'm trying to keep the size relatively close to what it was, but uh, and this is worth talking about. The books are no longer going to be the 7 by 10 They're going to be the tra traditional, quote-unquote, 8.5 by 11 size books. Um, and there are a couple of good reasons, but ultimately it boils down to 2020 fucked printing. And it is now makes more sense for us to make these bigger books. That's just what it yeah. comes down to. 
Um, so I do have more word count, but I'm still, I, my goal has always been to have them to be very approachable, be relatively slim by tabletop, modern tabletop role playing game standards. Uh, so I didn't want to add a ton there, partially because also I do, I still do like the idea of giving people hooks and names of places uh, and fleshing them out. But what happened was, is I gave people a bunch of names and places and then I got asked a bunch of questions and I ended up writing books talking about them. Uh, so mm-hmm. I feel like by having these setting adventure paths out in the future as separate books, then people can opt into a certain amount of canon rigidity, I guess. Uh, so it's like yeah. your monarchies can be whatever you want. Uh, we'll, we'll lightly talk about them in the, the Cats of Pugmire because you have to have some cultural context for your character either comes from or at least where your family may have come from. But if you want to know, okay, what is the city, it is capital of the monarchy of Mao, and what is that like, and who lives there? That's something I can do in a future book. Uh, but even then, I'm still largely kind of coloring in the boxes I've already laid down. I'm not going to be adding right now a ton of new locations. I'll probably add a few here and there just because it'll make sense for what we're working on. Um, but I'm not going to add like a whole new empire off in distance or anything um no it's still gonna be the mountains are to the north the acid sea is to the south the desert is to the east and the plains are to the west um and you go in that direction and there's bound to be some cool stuff but you'll have to figure it out i still want to have the the political map of pugmire it's bigger and it's a little more fleshed in but those edges do still trail off and that's by design because in my experience those are the four big adventuring environments, right? Uh, desert, okay. plains, uh, mountains, sea. Uh, Plenty of opportunities for a traverse role. Yes, absolutely. It, the skill's there for a reason. Use it. Well, that's me, sold. You know, I that, know how that's... much you love a traverse role, Matthew. <laughs> well, it's the only role I ask for. Well. <laughs> so I... I assume that when you say that plains includes like, you know, right, forests yeah. and moors um, and things. Uh, 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 and that's a okay. green places, right? Green, I mean, the, the, green the big scary forest is still smack in the middle between Pugmire and the Monarchies of Mao. So that's kind of the current kind of deep dark forest thing. But yeah, the more kind of less uber scary forests. Um, but yes, it's a kind of green spaces, dry spaces, mm. wet spaces, cold spaces. Those are the four adventure environments. The four genders. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be dry spaces. I'm, I'm definitely cold spaces. Mostly because I'm super dehydrated right yeah, now. Yeah. It's very dry it's here. Definitely that. Are there any moisturizing <laughs> spells in? Uh, that I think I think I think there's a. Is there like water a spell. like a water cloud? Can I? Uh, you could. Can I, sit in a water I don't cloud? know if we have rules for that, but do whatever you want. You're you're a free dog. Do what you want. Um, we do have a hundred spells, which is why I don't know it off the top of my head in this edition. And on the one hand, that sounds like a lot. On the other hand, it sounds like it's not a lot, but recognizing each spell is actually, most of them are also two or three spells inside of them. Uh, yeah. So there's actually quite a lot of options. Um, I'm a little nervous because I'll make spells for future books going forward. It's like, I'll write myself into a corner. It's like, well, that's it. Those are all the spells that exist clearly because I don't need to do anything else. I, that's not true. I know D&D has... Mm-hmm gazillions of spells so i'm sure at some point in time i could i could find uh, uh uses for them but i mean it's 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 a really tidy list um uh, uh Hiro specifically worked on that chapter um and they did a really good job of taking a bunch of slapdash stuff and kind of making sense out of all of it because one of the things that that's that's interesting about working in pugmire specifically is um when i first started approaching it my instinct, my design line was uh, I wanted the D&D people remember enough D&D that actually existed. Uh, but what comes with that are certain design decisions that are made purely because it is D&D and that's what D&D does. And now, okay, it's been five years, now Pugmire can be Pugmire and not necessarily a nostalgic version of D&D. Uh, so we can make decisions that D&D frankly can't make uh, because that's just not how people perceive it. Uh, I've said this before in podcasts, I know, but I am an apologist for fourth edition D&D because I feel like it's a genuinely good game, but a lot of people hated it because it wasn't Dungeons & Dragons uh, in their minds. So I can do things like 
in this version of the game, there are no ability scores. It's just the ability modifier because almost nobody uses the ability score for anything anymore. It's just this weird little thing. No. But D&D has ability scores that range mm-hmm. from 3 to 18. That's what D&D does. I don't need any of that. So I could just say, okay, your dexterity goes from negative three to plus five. And mm. that's the number you add to the dice roll. You know, there's no need for this extra number lingering around. Yeah, it's true. Nice way of creating some space on the character sheet, isn't it? It is. And, and um, it allows me to do things like I can move some parts around. I actually have a whole bunch of notes on a character sheet for my, so we can hate me in the future, but I have a whole bunch of ways of reorganizing kind of that character sheet. Uh, and, and one of them is, yeah, let's just get rid of this thing. Cause, cause the way I did originally designed the character sheet with Mike, this is really going into the weeds here. Uh, but there's a square and there's a little circle underneath that. And in my head, it was, you put the modifier in the big square and the number in the small circle. And absolutely every time I asked a developer or a writer to do character sheets, they would always do the score in the big square and the modifier in the small circle because that's how D&D <laughs> works. And I would explain to them every time and they'd go, oh yeah, why do we do it that way? Because that's what D&D does. There's no other design reason. And again, that's okay. It, it, it's It's... Let's go back to, to World Darkness, right? There are certain design decisions in World Darkness that need to continue. You can't do a Vampire the Masquerade game without humanity anymore. You just can't. Um, humanity has to, in some way, mm-hmm. be a thing that's on your character or affects your character. You could change it around. Fifth edition made some decisions on that front. You can't make a Vampire the Masquerade game that's involved D6 dice or D10 dice. Um, I remember there was one quick start uh, early 2000s where they weren't sure everyone would have access to D10s. And so it's rewritten using D6s and no one remembers it, and partially because you can't have Empire without D10s. Yeah, that's the revised edition mm-hmm. quick start, Thank isn't you. it? Where um, every clan has... I'm trying to remember now. They they have different um, clan weaknesses or clan yeah, yeah. gains, curses. And they literally only had three attributes, um, physical, social, mental. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, it was. Um, it, I don't know whether there was a direct link from the way that was developed to how the SAS modules there was. Uh, ended up being. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. I mean, the, the DNA there seems seems apparent to me as a reader, but I didn't know whether it actually. Yeah, because um, I, I, I worked on this. Um, uh, Will Hindmarch developed the SAS stuff and I inherited, it was one of the first thing, jobs I got when I worked at White Wolf was I inherited the SAS stuff uh, from Will when he went on to other opportunities. And I remember in the document I got handed said, you know, there were references to that. I think it was called a quick start or, or whatever. Um, and I remember that specifically because later, later on, uh, Rose and I, when we were in our office together and plotting all these things that would never come to pass, one of them was we were going to pitch a new version of storyteller system that used that D6 system as kind of an entry level for everything. Um, it's like, here's a super fast, simple system. We could print it in like five pages of rules um, and might be a way to kind of get people really excited just generally. And the roadblock we ran into was that's not how people perceive the storyteller system. It has to have two tens. Um, so this neat little... I people, people should dig it up. I know it, I know there's a PDF over on Drive Through RPG, but it's actually a neat little system buried in there. It's not quite storyteller, um, and it's a neat little thing. You can, I, I think it, it could stands you know someone to take it out and retcon it and remove all the identifying information and, and you know do something else with it maybe. But um, uh, I, I bring this up because that's something I learned hard working on 20th anniversary Vampire the Masquerade is that there are certain things that are just associated with games now and you can't change those design decisions uh so that's something i had to look at now with pugmire was i made some decisions initially to say i want to make a different game from DD, but still get DD dna that was both very important things what's the middle grounds and now i have five years of people playing pugmire seven years of people playing pugmire, actually um and so this game needs to be the best version of pugmire and doesn't necessarily need to hold decisions that D&D made, or even that I made. Uh, and so on the one hand, it's continuing to refine things like removing ability scores. Um, I refined how fortune works, for example. Uh, uh, now, if you roll a, a botch, a natural one on the die, you actually get a point of fortune automatically for the, for the bowl. Uh, because it's something I 
straight up lifter from story path. It's a brilliant idea of generating momentum. It's it's a great way of failing forward. And yep. in my own running of the game, fortune didn't really get generated very fast, particularly people who are either very shy or if you're playing a game, it didn't have a lot of role-playing opportunities. And so this is a way to kind of continually feed that bowl uh, and also make people feel good. Like you failed, but you got fortune for it at least. So you helped the group out. Uh, so then that felt good, I think. Um, but that's a decision specifically for Pugmire. Um, it, because that's that's not how Dungeon Dragon is designed. Dungeon Dragon is designed around the critical failure being a failure, critical success being a success. That those are important yeah. concepts that cannot change from a brand perspective. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about, just, just to go back for one second to the uh, mm-hmm. modifier versus ability score thing. What's interesting about that is that D&D doesn't even do it that way anymore. Yeah. Like with the large number in the top bubble. If you make a character on like D&D Beyond, it puts your modifier in the top bubble. The big, like, big yeah, it's one. been shifted over the past five years, though. Yeah. If you look at the early releases, yeah. they, they were still that way. Yeah, yeah, that's, 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 that's what I'm saying. It's like they don't even do it that way anymore. So it's funny that we still have others and, you know, me even, I, I, have, I have done it before, have like just kind of instinctively throw the big number in the bigger bu- bubble. And mm-hmm. it's like, that's not even correct for D&D. Come on, y'all. <laughs> and actually, that brings me a good point. Um, one of the other things, uh, another piece of this is also following five years of D&D design. Because again, when I first made Pugmire, fifth edition was a last gasp attempt to try to reclaim market share from Pathfinder. It was fourth edition network to make a new edition. Let's hope to God it works. Now, looking at 2022, it is the most popular edition of D- Dungeons & Dragons ever by a lot of different metrics. Um, and... It has changed. And one of the big places it's changed is bioessentialism. Uh, you know, the idea of a fantasy race and how that design works is largely going away and has been going away surprisingly quickly, all things considered for D&D as a brand. Not as fast as enough for some, granted, but for a big corporation to make that kind of change, making the change more or less in a year and a half is actually pretty fast. Uh, and that's something I wanted to do with Pugmire initially, and I second-guessed myself because I did not think fantasy fans would accept that. So Breed became a little more hard-coded than I wanted. Mm-hmm. And you can see that because the very next game, Monarchies of Mao, it's like, nope, screw it. Houses. <laughs> right? Yeah. I, I, and you could tell I didn't want to go there. And every game since then has more or less had some form of you could train this way. Um, birds are kind of another weird case. But even then, it's only for one trick. You know, it's the only thing that really matters for how your corn quote corn was how your wings work. Uh and so this time around, I, I've, I've just said, this is where I want to go. It's, it's where the community is going. I want to follow suit, but also it's where I want to be, begin with. So now it's upbringing. And uh, one of the things that really helped me to come to this decision is, uh, it's actually during the first Kickstarter, uh, a woman emailed me uh, and she basically talked about breeds because my initial, the original early access, uh, what dog breeds I had with which breeds in the game were just arbitrary and she's like no no these are all wrong uh and i had a lot of people say that initially i was like okay shorter but she's like i'm a dog i'm a dog trainer here's what the breeds perceptions ultimately mean to is like how far you train your dog along the prey drive if you get really close to the prey drive that's where you get a lot of your worker and hunter dogs if you get really far away from the prey drive that's where you get your companions your pugs and whatnot imagine a pug hunting anything down it's just hilarious um, but you could train a pug to hunt theoretically. Um, it's just the, 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 these, these breed things are actually all training. And a lot of it is we buy a pug because we want that dog to be social. So we train that dog to be social. So pugs are seen as social dogs. So it's like, oh, well then it doesn't really matter. Uh, so I have moved to upbringing. The upbringings are the same as the breeds because at the end of the day, that's what they are. You see, you are trained to be a worker. You are trained to be a runner. You are trained to be a companion, which was what they were meant to yeah. be in the first place. So it, so all from a, Casual, I'm using the game perspective, just in your head, switch breed for upbringing, nothing else changes really. There's some under the hood design stuff I've moved around a little bit. Like, for example, uh, there are no longer the charts of dog breeds in each of those because I got so many fights about that. So I was like, I'm just done. No, we're not. Got rid of that. Um, But also, I wanted to reinforce the idea of if you look, if you present as a big Bernard, but you're adopted by the Papillon family, your last name is Papillon. And you might be trained as a companion, even mm. though you present like a Bernard. Oh my God, I want to play like a himbo companion Bernard now. Right? Right? Like, it's, I, it's like, I, 
I essentially want to play Scorpio from She-Ra. Yes. And you could totally do that. Yeah. You could do it before, but now there's much more explicit permission right, to do that. Exactly. Um, so, so yeah, again, like it's a big change. It was a big enough change that it warranted a second edition. But in terms of your day-to-day experience playing Pugmire, all that's happened is the little word before the bullet point on your character sheet changed to a different word, right? So that's why it, it, I'm glad we're doing this deep dive because I've been doing a lot of it's a big change, but it's not really. And just to kind of really clarify that it is both. I, I firmly believe it is both a huge change and not that big of a deal. Um, and it's good to have this hour to actually talk through all of that because I'm really excited about it. I'm really, I, I feel like this has been for a while. Um, uh, you know, talking behind the curtain a little bit, I've been talking about this probably since before the pandemic on some level. Uh, uh, Privately to Rich, to the whole group, I've been saying, I think it's time for another edition of Pugmire. It's never been quite the right time. And each time I think about it, it's been like, I can adjust this, I can adjust this, I can adjust this. And I didn't change everything I wanted to. There's something Mm -hmm. that's like, this bugs me, but everyone else loves it. So I'm going to keep it that way. Or uh, another case is is something that I, I wanted to work a certain way. It never quite landed. And so now I've readjusted it to work the way I wanted to. A plastic, for example. Um, plastic was always meant to be kind of a narrative thing. Yeah, you, you have some money, you know, and, and I bribed the guards. Cool. Well, I went from some money to no money because I bribed the guards. That was always the intent. Nobody got it. Um, Dixie's probably the only person who got it. <laughs> <laughs> Most people did not get it because they're, again, so used to it is D&D. I must track down to the copper piece how much money I have. And I think that's dull. Yeah, uh, no, I, so- I, I hate tracking finances in tabletop games. Like, they're there are a few that I, I I understand, like why it's like that, but I really don't like it when you're sitting there and you're like, "Can I buy a health potion?" And they're like, "You know, how much gold do you have?" And you're like, "I have three. And they're like, "Well, it says here in the book it costs four, so no, you can't." It's like just give right. me a damn health potion, right? See, it's it's weird. I feel like there was a point in my role playing career, Halby, whatever, uh, where. I I did get excited about that oh, kind yeah. of thing where I'd go to the mm-hmm. where I'd do the the shopping session, see what I could afford, and if I couldn't afford this particular magical item, I know I would have to go out on another adventure to mm-hmm. find enough coin to come back and buy it. And then at some point, that enthusiasm just completely evaporated, and yeah, I got to the point of. Listen, <laughs> I, I'm an adventurer. I need to do heroic things. Give me the goddamn great sword. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what happens to my, me. My, but I, I agree. My argument for that is, I believe World of Warcraft is what happens. I believe. Well, I never played. It doesn't the, matter culturally. The grind hmm. became went from gamer culture to pop culture. And at some point in time, it, the grind went from a potentially exciting game, depending on the person you went with, to universally reviled. Because mm-hmm. lots of people played World of Warcraft and lots of people hated the grind. Yeah. I, my, my personal theory as to why that happened. Um, but I'm with you. When I ran Cyberpunk games, I mean, the original Cyberpunk 2020 game, like the uh, Chromebooks were laid out like catalogs. Each, each one's like an art yeah, piece. Yeah. And you go through and flip through the catalog and try to, oh man, I've only got, I need 3,000 more Eddies to get this one gun. So can we do another mission? Because I really need the money to get this mm-hmm. gun. That was interesting. For a fun game about dogs that make friends with random people or maybe run away, doesn't make sense. Uh, yeah, where it isn't a damning indictment of capitalism necessarily. Right, yeah. Um, uh, in Pugmire, whereas Cyberpunk definitely Exactly, is. right, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, and even to a degree, D&D is a certain amount of, of uh, being... You know, even if you're good characters, you're still also slightly mercenary, and that's always kind of embedded in the D&D concept. Yeah, yeah, you, you are, without calling on the class of rogue, you are rogues, right. you are second class, uh, You yeah, you're people who aren't necessarily trusted, so it's almost as if the person who hires you is always doing so begrudgingly, uh, because you're the dirty kinds of scoundrels that can get this job done. Right, but you know, there's no scene in Redwall where they're counting how many berries they have to buy food for the day, you know? Uh, no, <laughs> right. not. So I, I felt very strong that that was important, but I kept running to this wall of people not getting it. And so for Realms of Pugmire, what I've done is I've compromised and I have what I'm calling the plastic track. 
which is mm. the exact same mechanics that are actually in the first edition. They're just in the guide section, but basically it's the here are the different levels of plastic you can have. And they range from no plastic to loads of plastic. And what I did is now it's on the character sheet and there are checkboxes. So you can move up and down your checkbox. If you get more money, move up a checkbox or two. If you lose money, move down a checkbox or two. And it's there just as a separate little thing. So you can track up how much money you have for people who need that. But also there are absolutely no mechanics around it. Uh, so it's the, um, the game master can say, okay, you want to get a bunch of equipment. Well, how much money do you guys have? It's like, well, I have a little money. And say, well, I have lots of money. And say, okay, fine. Um, your little money goes down to nothing. Your lots of money goes down to oh, some money. Uh, and then you move on. That was always design intent. But I just now made that clearer. And hopefully that solves that problem. Um, but again, as I've said before, lots of people, if you want to introduce a currency system, I, there, there's setting references to how currency breaks down. And if you want to add prices to things, you can just do that. Just, you know, call a plastic piece a gold piece and then, you know, use the minuses and pluses from there. It all, the math more or less works out. If you want to use those tables, yep. you can, but I'm not going to give you that help because I think it's boring. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, well, in that case, listeners, I do hope this has been an enlightening deep dive. This won't be our only point of visitation for Pugmire, of course, as the Kickstarter is launching later this month. Eddie, do you have a date? Uh, we can't announce it yet. Um, mainly, We have a date in mind, put it that way. Um, uh, but one of the reasons why I've always been coy about dates has been because it depends on whether Kickstarter approves the campaign, um, mm -hmm. whether we can get everything together in time, because we, you know, we have to get art for the campaign, and you know sometimes you know things happen with artists. But right now, at this time of recording, we're reasonably confident it's going to launch the, near the end of January, so in a few weeks. Well, in that case, listeners, you know, keep your eyes open, your ears to the ground, your nose to the grindstone, your shoulders to the wheel, and your fingers glued to your keyboard. Don't, don't glue your fingers uh, to your I'm keyboard. Sure. It's a terrible idea. That's not, it's not healthy. Actually, it won't help you unless your fingers are glued in exactly the right places to spell out the word Pugmire, and you already have Kickstarter loaded up. <laughs> Uh, otherwise, yes, you may find it difficult. You'll have to operate a mouse with your mouth, maybe your tongue. Just avoid my advice. And <laughs> we will tell you on all channels when Realms of Pugmire is launched on crowdfunding platform. Absolutely. Uh, so with all that said, Eddie, if people want to speak to you, uh, in between all of the design diaries you're putting on YouTube, the design blogs you're putting on the onyxpath.com, if people are insatiable and cannot get enough of your Realms of Pugmire information, where would they ask you? So the uh, best ways are, if you're just interested in Realms of Pugmire, uh, there's my website, realmsofpugmire.com, that's has been active for several years now, and it has all the uh, early edition classic stuff. Um, and we'll obviously have more information once the crowdfunding goes live. So that, that's your one-stop shop if you want Pugmire information. Um, if you want to contact me, um, uh, my website is pugstady.com, P-U-G-S-T-A-D-Y. I say that a lot, but one thing I want to mention also is that if you go to that website, there is also a way you can subscribe to a newsletter that I put out every month. And I will definitely send out a newsletter link when the, when the campaign goes live and with any important information. When it's not a campaign like this, it, I only do once a month, but it'd be a little more. So if you want to stay more relevant to that, that's another good way to stay in touch. Um, and then uh, I'm still on Twitter until it explodes. Uh, so I'm also Pugsteady on Twitter. And I'm also going to be posting regularly uh, when there are updates, when I do an interview, when I do a podcast, when uh, I do a blog, whatever. I'll always be posting there as well. So any of those places will get you the information you need. Excellent. And how about you, Dixie? If they wanted to speak to you about your hopes and dreams for Realms <laughs> of Pugmire, where, where would they find you? Uh, the best place to chat directly with me would be in the Onyx Path Discord, where I am Dixie Cyanide. But I'm also Dixie Cyanide on pretty much all social media, so I am not difficult to find. Excellent. And they can find me on the Onyx Path Discord. They can find me on Twitter at DawkinsMP. They can find me on MatthewDawkins.com. They can find all of us on the OnyxPath.com, where we post a new blog entry every Monday. And as mentioned, we are uh, writing, or Eddie is writing new Pugmire-related blog entries for every Thursday. Uh, yep. You will gain new, fresh insight into the design process that goes into a new edition of this very popular game, uh, as well as on the Onyx Path YouTube channel, where every Tuesday and Thursday you will get snippet, little vignettes, 
chats and little videos <laughs> where Eddie talks you through these things in real time. So, uh, with all that said, thank you very much to my co-hosts. Thank you very much to the listeners. Happy 2023, everybody. Many worlds. Love.